2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Father, just train us up, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is the first day of Advent. November 27th, usually it's the last Sunday of November. Advent running all the way through December 24th. And most people, when they hear the phrase Advent, they think of those little Advent calendars with the chocolates in them. They think of Advent as that Christmassy time of year when the snowflakes fall and the lights go on the trees and the decorations come out and, and we uh, sing Christmas carols and, and enjoy thinking back to that mysterious night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Advent, a time of celebration. And most liturgical churches, liturgical simply meaning they follow a liturgy, so they're, they're more written and scripted in their services, especially on the weekends. We are quite unscripted at the bridge. But in the more liturgical church, they, during Advent, will look back to the first coming of Jesus Christ. But the word Advent means much more. In fact, it is from the Latin Adventus. It's from the Greek parousia, and the word literally means coming. This is the season of the coming. Advent itself, as a celebration, actually began in the 5th century, not as a time of celebration for the birth of Christ, but originally as a time of anticipation for the second coming of Christ. Looking toward His coming, not back to His coming. And it's, it's really kind of been watered down and made into this looking back experience, much more so than the looking forward experience, which was originally intended. It's looking forward to the fulfillment of that offer that was made at His first coming, at His first advent. You may recall what the offer, offer was. As the Bethlehem shepherds were there, camped out, watching their flocks by night, the angel host sang out, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Peace. Peace was the offer of the first advent. Peace is coming in the second advent. But peace on earth seems to be a very distant thing right now, doesn't it? Peace on earth Considering the global positioning of, of Russia, of China, of Iran, trying to really stake a claim on the planet. Considering the fact that Al-Qaeda and ISIS have now infiltrated, by some estimates, 35 nations. 
including our own. Not to mention (laughs) the protests in our own country right now over, in my opinion, some rather foolish things. Peace. You may look around the world, and at this time of year especially, Christmas time, say, where's the peace? The Prince of Peace. And the angel said, peace is the offer. And where is the peace? Jesus knew this would come. He knew that His coming to this world would not initially bring peace. He said in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. We begin this Advent season at a difficult time, my friends. But it's appropriate, I think, that we spend our countdown to Christmas, at least at the outset here, with a study on warfare. Because that's where we are. And truly, that's what Christians have been called to. You might think, wait a minute, did I accidentally come into a mosque this morning? What what are you talking about? Warfare? This is, this is our calling as followers? It absolutely is. And Jesus said clearly, I did not come to bring peace on earth but a sword. Why would He say that? Because conflict and clashes, contentions, and yes, even casualties would come. They were not the intent of His coming, but they were the effect of His coming. What Jesus described when He said, I came to set a, a man against his father and, and a woman against her mother and, and a son-in-law against his daughter-in-law. More understandable. But I came for all these contentious things. He didn't come to cause those things, but He knew His coming would cause those things. And some of you understand that. In your own family there's contention. In your own extended family, there's strife between family members, some who believe in Jesus, others who do not. And that contention boils up and boils over holiday times, times when we gather together and those who are Christians trying to share with those who are not, those who are not don't want to hear about it and and contention comes. Understand, this is exactly what happens when the Prince of Peace is rejected. It is not a surprise that we live in a war a world of continual warfare. It's not a surprise that we have seen what we've seen, not just in this age, but across this age, not just in this decade or our culture, but across the last 2,000 years. We have seen a world at war. You see, with the advent of the babe in the manger came the promise of a different kind of war. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. A different kind of war. We heard that. We hear that in America over and over. We've heard it since 9-11 specifically, right? I mean, I think it was. It may have been right at the beginning from the Oval Office when President Bush uh, made a statement right at the beginning saying this is going to be a different kind of war. And, and I think he was right. Uh, certainly a different kind of war than America has been used to. But Christians have been fighting a different kind of war for 2,000 years. A very different kind of war. Not a war of the flesh. But a different war altogether. And while both the objective and the outcome of this war, of this battle, of these skirmishes, will be peace. Guaranteed. The fighting of this long campaign is unlike 
any other kind of warfare. And that's what Paul begins to tell us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I will tell you right now, and I'm going to get into this a little more on Wednesday night and explain it, but there are those who think, because chapter 10 through 13, the last four chapters of this letter, are so unique, so different, and and so intense. They think that perhaps these last four chapters are actually the lost letter of Paul. The severe letter that he refers to earlier on in 2 Corinthians, that perhaps... The last four chapters are 2 Corinthians, and and this is 3 Corinthians, or however you want to number it, and that the early church just took these four chapters and tacked them on to make one book that we call 2 Corinthians. I think that's highly unlikely. And I will teach this as one letter from Paul, written intentionally, that chapter 10, verse 1, immediately follows chapter 9, verse 15, intentionally, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle. And I'm pretty firm on this, and again, I'll explain why on Wednesday night, that I believe that this is one letter. But leading up to chapter 10, we've already seen Paul's approach personally. Right? The first seven chapters, it's very personal. It's a letter of comfort. It's a letter of restoration of relationship. It's a letter where Paul's saying, look, conflict over. Let's just open your hearts to us. Remember we talked about that. Open your hearts. We've opened our hearts to you. We love you at Corinth. So the first seven chapters he deals with the personal. The chapters following eight and nine are practical. And we talked about that last week. The practical issue of giving. And how that affects the heart. And and how Corinth was being called to follow through with their commitment to give. So personal and practical. It's all behind us. This is a good time for Paul to wind down, finish up the letter, say his uh, greetings and, and be done with it. Instead, in chapter 10, he comes out swinging. He comes out almost ready for warfare, or or so it seems. In fact, we will call these last four chapters not the personal or the practical, but the powerful. Because to my way of thinking, this is the most powerful section of the letter, and some intense things are shared in these last four chapters. I believe Paul, like any preacher worth his salt, is building to the end of the sermon. Okay, he's, he's gearing up to the final impassioned plea, and he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. See, there were some in Corinth that were saying that. Oh, Paul talks a big talk. Oh, his letters are scary. Whoa, letter from Paul. But then when he shows up, he's a wimp, man. He's quiet, and he's... Meek and oh, big threat when he writes to us, but he can't stand up when he's in our presence. And so Paul says, Hey, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. In other words, when I get there, there are a few of you who are going to feel my courage. I've heard what you're saying. And he goes on and says, Those who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. See, here's the deal. This charge against Paul that he talks a big talk. He's saying, listen, you completely misunderstand me. You misunderstand why I'm bold in my letters. In my letters, I am teaching doctrine. I am teaching truth. I am laying out reality. Now, Paul may not have fully been aware of this, but it was doctrinal truth that would be held by the church for 2,000 years. 
And so the strong words and the absolute foundation that Paul is is laying by the Spirit here is, is critical, it's vital. But when he is there in person, he's saying, we don't walk according to the flesh. You expect me to teach boldly, but then to come and and be bashing people over the heads. That's not how it works. You don't get it. This isn't just about self-defense. This is about spiritual truth. Again, more about this on Wednesday night, but I will tell you this much right now. Paul always has that tendency in his letters. What tendency? To use personal issues to teach doctrinal truth. And so he deals with himself and he lays it out on the line and he deals with his relationship with Corinth for the purpose of teaching the truth. But here's the spiritual truth that Paul gets across right at the beginning. Note this. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. As some in Corinth have thought and as some people sometimes in the world and the church seem to think. If I'm meek, if I'm mild, if I'm gentle, well, then I'm not tough for Jesus. Hey, meekness is not weakness. The word meekness, here where Paul says, I who am meek when face to face with you, is prautes in the Greek, and it means mild, uh, friendly, gentle, pleasant. But it does not mean passive. It means good-tempered or even-tempered. It's the meekness that truly we see in someone who has self-confidence, who doesn't have to prove themselves or push themselves on other people. And yet in our culture, is meekness a rallying cry for a soldier? That's kind of a weird thing to think of a a fleet admiral standing up before the ship and, and calling out, we're going into battle and I want you all to be meek, gentle, Tender-hearted. They push him over the side, man. Meekness. But this is a great contrast with the war of the flesh. This is a very different kind of war. I want you to know four things that Paul pulls out here. Number one, the character of our commander. The character of our commander. You see, Paul is not appealing to his own meekness. He's appealing to the meekness of Christ Jesus. As he says at the beginning, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's where the meekness comes from. That's why when I'm in your presence, Paul says, I am gentle because he's gentle. Because that's the way he is. The character of our commander. And it was what Jesus claimed of himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he said, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, prautus. I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' only self-description, meek and humble. How do you describe yourself? Well, Jesus' answer is, I am gentle, and I'm humble. And then he says in that same passage, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What do you mean, Jesus? Do as I do. I am meek and humble of heart. You be meek and humble of heart. Soldiers of Christ arise to meekness. It's a different kind of war, which requires a different approach. The character of Christ Jesus is one of humility and gentleness. In fact, he said in Matthew 5.5, Blessed are the gentle, the meek, the prautes. 
For they shall inherit the earth. Those who have that even temper. Those who are gentle. And if you happen to be a hothead, pray, man. Repent. This is the character trait of a follower of Jesus heading into battle. They shall inherit the earth. The the meek. And so they shall. So we shall. Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10, Revelation 20, verse 6, in those three places where, where John writes of the coming kingdom and that we will rule and reign with Him. Who's going to rule and reign with Him? The tough? The mean? The brutes? No. The meek. The meek. And the character traits that we are trained to emulate. Again, completely different than how the flesh wants to fight. You think about it. When you get a little fight in you, what do you how, how are you? Argumentative? Going after people? Trying to win? Fighting strong? Listen to the contrast. Paul writes in Galatians, which we're going to get to right after the first of the year. Galatians 5.19, Lord willing. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is what the flesh looks like. This is how the flesh wars. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. That's how the world fights. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to say something to our naval personnel with with deep, deep admiration and respect for you all. I hope you know by now how much we appreciate you and the work that you do and the service that you provide this country. But the question I want to ask you is, what do you do with a drunken sailor? You know, there's a stereotype out there. And if you're in the Navy, you know it better than anybody else. It's probably one that you as a follower of Jesus in the Navy don't like, but it's out there. And it has to do with carousing and drunkenness and immoralities and impurity and sensuality and these things that seem to accompany warfare. Why is that? Because the flesh accompanies the flesh. And when we're fighting according to the flesh, the flesh wants to find other outlets for fighting as well. That's the way the flesh works. And my encouragement to those of you who are in military service specifically is, are you different? Which commander do you seek to emulate? General Jesus? Or some other CO? See, he's meek and humble. Oh, you can't be meek and humble in the Navy, can you? I think it will serve you well. It's surprising. It's different. It is not of the flesh. You see, Paul goes on in that same passage, Galatians 5.22, to say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I got those all out of order, but they're all in there. And if if a commanding officer were to stand up and say, this is the deal, this is what I'm expecting out of all of you on this next deployment. First of all, love. And then, joy. Peace. 
You know, you, you laugh them again off the ship, but that's, that's the difference between warring in the flesh and warring according to the Spirit. Paul writes, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? That means if Jesus is my CO, then I'm going to be like Him. That means if He is the commanding officer, if He is the one that stands on the deck and calls me to service, I will do as He does. And He says, learn from me, I'm meek and humble. That's the character of our commander. Before we even pick up a weapon of warfare, we have to look to Him and emulate Him. And it doesn't matter if you're a centurion or a cheesemaker. If you're called to follow Jesus Christ, once you belong to Him, you do not harden yourself for war. In fact, I think I can rightly say in this campaign, the softer the heart, the more powerful the soldier. Now apply that all of us, not just naval personnel and military folk. The softer the heart, the more powerful the soldier. Is that true in your family? Or do you find yourself getting your back up? Ready to fight. I'm not going to give in to that person. I'm not going to be the first one to apologize in this situation. And that's not the character of the commander. Meekness, humility. Because here's the reality. True power doesn't have to prove itself, ever. True power does not have to stand up and say, I am strong. You know, true power is just present. And is obvious. It's, it's the Nazarene walking through the angry crowd of Nazarenes. On the day of the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, when they wanted to push him off a cliff, what did he do? He walked through him. I used to think when I was younger it was magical that he kind of you know, did a David Blaine and he was just gone. No. It just says he walked through them. There was a sense, I believe, of the power of God in Christ Jesus that when He was done with a situation, He was done. What about the same Jesus who cleared the money changers out of the temple, squared off against the pharisaical power brokers? He commanded the forces of nature. You want to talk about true power? Watch someone on a boat in the middle of the storm say, hush, and everything goes glass. The power was there. Not only over the natural, but over the physical. Power to heal. Power to give hearing back to the deaf and sight to the blind. Things that the prophet said would be the picture of the Messiah. I mean, that's real power, right? Power over the spiritual world. To cast out demons. Who does that? Jesus had that power and did not have to prove that power. And ultimately, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.15 tells us. He disarmed them, conquering sin and death itself. How? Through meekness and humility on the cross. So, when conflicts and contentions and clashes come our way, this army is being trained with the character of our commander, trained to be like Jesus in meekness, in gentleness, in even-temperedness. That is the right attitude for spiritual warfare. Please remember that. Anytime you hear that phrase, spiritual warfare, and it's talked about a lot in the church, it is not about being mean-spirited and brutish. It's about gentleness and love and meekness. Well, verse 3, continuing on, 
So Paul opens up this can of worms and he says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The character of our commander at number two, the weapons of our warfare. What are they? The weapons of our warfare, everybody runs to Ephesians chapter 6 and starts rattling off the full armor of God. Don't do that. Don't immediately answer the weapons of our warfare, our belts and breastplates and shoes and shields and helmets, because that's all just protective gear. That's all defensive. And when Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare that are not of the flesh, he is talking about two things, just two. And we can, we can speculate and come up with all kinds of different things and, and develop many different programs, right, Les? We were talking in between services. And I, he knows what I'm going to share here, the two weapons of our warfare. It's very simple. And, and I told Les, I said, you know, this is so simple and we've heard it so many times and talked about it again and again and again. And Les said, yeah, that's why we don't do programs. We just do, do those two things. We seek to do those two things well. So my question is for you this morning, and I'm I'm going to push a little bit here, so forgive me ahead of time. I've already had to deal with my own guilt over this stuff, so I'm going to dump it on you now. Are you willing to move forward in your ability to handle these two weapons? Are you willing to truly be trained up in the use of these two implements of war that the Scripture tells us. Well, what are they, Rick? Very simply, Ephesians six seventeen: the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. The Bible and prayer. God's Word and prayer. Oh, okay, Rick. Well, yeah, we've talked about that. Okay, we got that down. Isn't there something a little deeper, a little more profound that you can share with us? Listen, i got to ask you this question, and I ask you to take it personally. How... How proficient are you with the Word of God? How well do you handle the sword? You know how to swing this bad boy? Are you proficient enough with the Word of God to take down fortresses and strongholds? I really wonder this sometimes. And I'm in my own life. I told you, I already kind of wallowed through my own stuff thinking through this. But I think far too many Christians are far more proficient in fiction than they are in the word of truth. Far too many Christians pour hour after hour over books of our culture. Spending comparatively little time in the sword of the Spirit. Listen. The Bible is the only book that can take down strongholds. All of the other manuals, all of the other self-help, all of the other things, even in the Christian bookstores, and I know that this has been kind of my soapbox in the past, the shelves and shelves of Christian living and self-help and how to this and how to that, and I'm thinking, we just need one shelf with one book. Well, it's so simplistic. Yes! Thank you! This is our sword. Do you know how to wield it? Oh, pastor, I don't know. I, I, I get enough Bible study. Really? When I hear that, my immediate response is you have completely misunderstood the value of this sword. I get enough Bibles. I don't need more. 
The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And if you were heading into battle, would you leave a sword like that sheathed until you saw the whites of their eyes? I mean, how foolish would that be? I fired my weapon in basic training. I don't really need to practice now. Well, when the battle comes, you will not be able to fire. You will not be proficient. Not good for the fight. Training's unnecessary. Now, listen. And this doesn't apply to everyone. It doesn't even apply to everyone who doesn't come on a Wednesday night because many of you are in Bible study and you're in small groups and you're studying the Word of God. And by the way, I am so impressed... Before I get back to this other thought, rabbit trail with me. I am so impressed with the group of young people going to connect. Because there are a number of them who are showing up here every Sunday morning to be in the Word. They are back every Wednesday night to be in the Word. They are here every Friday night to be in the Word. And by the way, about half of them are showing up at Glenn's Bible study every Sunday night to be in the Word four times a week. And it's not enough for them, is it? Allison's one of them. It's not enough. They're just hungry for it. And they're learning how to do battle with this book. The sword of the spirit. Now, here's what I was going to say before. And I mean this with genuine love. But I don't understand. Someone explain to me why this auditorium is not packed out every Wednesday night. Why there's a single empty seat? Why are we not pulling out more chairs? If we truly believe that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, why is it that we would ever go into a conversation with a friend or family member and stumble over our words because we don't know, we don't have the answer for them? When the training is available and it is right here, are we all proficient in the handling of the Word of God? Let me tell you something. I am not. I am not proficient in the handling of this word. I need every moment of study that I put into this word. And even so, there are times, uh, this morning, right between services, <laughs> Luke uh, came up to me and, and Luke goes, hey, I got a question about Ecclesiastes. He opens it up, he starts asking me, and he asked me this pretty profound question. I looked at him and I went, you really expect me just to pull that one right out of my hat right now? You know, I thought, email me later, I'll think about it. You know, and we talked about it and tried to, you know, find the answer to the question he was asking. But if if I spend the amount of time I have to spend in the Word of God to teach in this fellowship, and I don't feel proficient in the Word of God, how much time are you spending with the sword? How much effort are you putting in to knowing this? I get it, it's a big book. I understand the sword can be heavy. And, and, and long and, and difficult to handle at first because I'm not sure how to pick it up and hold it right and, and do I thrust or do I swing or what? How do I use this? You're never going to know if you're not here and in the Word. And again, I will add this caveat. If you are in the Word somewhere else, fine. Then don't worry about Wednesday night. We're all good. But if you're not in the Word and you're not consistently being trained up, Paul said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 
how accurate are you with the sword of the word? How about that other offensive weapon? Because we're already offended, Rick. How about that one? Prayer. How proficient are you in prayer? How consistent, maybe, is a better word, are you in prayer? How do you pray? Maybe we should start there. Are your prayers petitionary? Asking, you know, for stuff? Are your prayers uh, pious? You know, do you, do you have a certain set of religious prayers that you're kind of used to praying and, and you pray those before every meal or, or at certain times of the year? Are they religious sounding? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Which cracks me up because what that tells me is that the Gentiles praying to all their false gods to the Lord, it sounds like the teacher on Charlie Brown, many words, 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 doesn't get anywhere. Are your prayers like that? Religious? Are they protectionary? Oh God, save me from this. Protect me from that. Cover me from the other. Now, now these are not necessarily bad things. One would be bad. Are your prayers peevish? Like you just complain. Ah, Jesus, here we go again. (laughs) How often do you pray, I love this word, pugnaciously? Are you ever pugnacious in prayer? What do you mean pugnacious? Not like a little dog with a smashed face? No. Pugnacious means to be combative. Are you ever combative in your prayer? Are you ever offensive? And I don't mean that you offend, but that you are on the offensive in your prayer. Do you ever pray against the work of the enemy, the work of evil, what's going on in this world? Because that is an aspect of prayer that I think we ought to be trained up in. A little more offensive intercession. Listen to David, who was, man, not only king of Israel, he was king of the imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory? It's like pugnacious. It just means offensive. Listen to this. There are five imprecatory psalms. Five psalms where David is just going after it. And Psalm 58 is one of these. It begins, Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? The word gods there is literally silent ones. He's talking about the false idols. Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. And then he begins the prayer, pugnaciously, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Ever pray that? (laughs) He says, break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be, I love this, as a snail which melts away as it goes along. With a little salt on it, you know, bubble, 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 bubble. He says, like the miscarriages of a woman that never see the sun. That is offensive prayer. 
Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he says, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. My goodness, David. Who are you praying about? Well, in Psalm 58, we believe that he was dealing with a corrupt Supreme Court left over from the previous administration. (laughs) But here's the thing. Understand, in the praying of this prayer, in the writing of this psalm, this is so important, David was not himself out breaking teeth. Like some kind of deranged dentist. He wasn't snapping arrow shafts. He wasn't assaulting snails. He understood, I believe, exactly what Paul here is saying. And what is that? This is a different kind of war. He is praying spiritually against the working of the enemy. And so David prayed effectively. So Paul would pray effectively. And so James wrote in James 5.16, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Which is why we're all really glad we have less to take care of that effective prayer. Right? My righteous brother, we all he's the righteous one. So he's kind of our righteous representative. Right? That totally offends me. I am working really hard here. (laughs) The effective prayer of a righteous man. You know what? You know who he's talking about, Christian brother and sister? He's talking about you. Oh, I'm not a righteous man. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. If you have been blood-bought by Jesus... If the blood of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, that substitutionary sacrifice, was poured out for you and you believe it, you're a righteous man. You're a righteous woman. Your prayers are effective. And you don't even have to worry about it. You don't pray and go, Oh God, okay, I I hope this works. (laughs) I'm I'm just not sure because, well, you know me, um, but here we go. No. Your prayer is effective because you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You just pray and let Him worry about it. And don't be afraid to be a little pugnacious in your prayer. We are talking about weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The Word of God. Should you know how to wield it? And prayer. Should you be willing to speak it? And yes, you can and should and will pray out against the wickedness of this world. Against the evil things that we see. Pray on the offensive. It's not all just about kind of the wimpy... Remember, meekness is not weakness. So we pray fervently. And we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We stand up and are counted as warriors... Prayer warriors. What does that mean? You know, everybody thinks it means I get in my closet and close the door. I'm not saying that's not a good idea. But how many soldiers go to the closet? What are you getting at, Rick? That we shouldn't go in our... No, that's fine. Go in your prayer closet. That's fine. What I'm saying is just be bold in your prayer. Pray wherever you are. If you're in the car driving down the freeway, pray boldly. If you're in the midst of a conversation and you don't know how to take it, Pray boldly. 
Let our lives be marked by these things. Let us be seen as people who are carrying the weapon of the sword of the word and the weapon of prayer everywhere we go. Let us be seen in McDonald's praying pugnaciously. Can you even imagine? You open up your little cheeseburger and your fries there and you got your Coke and you look around and you go, okay, Lord, I just want to pray against the enemy and the wicked of this world. Please break their teeth and smash their skulls in. Thank you. <laughs> Rip out their hearts. Thanks for the fries in Jesus' name. I mean, what would the world think? I'm just saying, be bold, man. Don't let, don't be afraid to let people see who you are in Christ Jesus by the character of our commander and the weapons of our warfare, taking down, number three, the strongholds of our struggle. Now, first of all, he says, the destruction of fortresses. That word destruction, I'll come back to the strongholds just a second here. But that word destruction is katharreo, which I'm sure makes Russ a little uncomfortable. Katharreo, Russ and Kathy. I don't know if there's a connection between... Does your name mean destruction? Because it does in the Greek, sister. Take them down. And that's what it means, though. Katharreo literally means to pull down, to take down, to destroy, as in to tear down. But it also means, get this, it's important... It means to intellectually refute. That is to be able to, as Paul is going to say in just a moment, even be able to tear down speculations. Again, I'll get there. But remember, this is a different kind of war. God knows how to take down the opposition in a completely different way than we ever would expect. And we should know this because the very first wall that went down is example of this. In the oldest fortification known to archaeology, the oldest city in the existence of the world as far as archaeologists are concerned, there's a mound. It's called Tel Sultan today. It was surrounded by, quote, a great earthen rampart or embankment with a stone retaining wall set all the way around the base. This is from Biblical Archaeology Review. The retaining wall itself was 12 feet high. On top of that was a mud brick wall about 6 feet thick and another 20 to 26 feet high. At the crest, now of this embankment, was another mud brick wall whose base was roughly 46 feet above the ground level outside the lower retaining wall. Humanly speaking, it was impossible to penetrate the impregnable bastion of this stronghold named Jericho. Jericho. The wall of Jericho. And in that marvelous battle, God did something completely different. Check this out. Joshua chapter 6. You can just listen and I'll read it to you. Or open up your Bible and swing that sword a little bit. Side note. Talking to Glenn in between services. I told you, you guys always get more than first service do. Does. So you might want to come to first service if you want a shorter teaching. Just saying. Talking with Glenn, and he was he was visiting a church while they were away, and he came back and he said it's just it's where he visited anyway was so different. You know, it was so short, and it was just and nobody had Bibles, and 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 everything that they needed was put up on the screen behind them. And I said to Glenn, and I want to say to you, you know what that is? You know what's happening in the church today when it's all provided for you and you don't have to wield the sword at all. It's no different than stained glass windows in the Middle Ages. They had stained glass windows. 
in the church of the Middle Ages to teach the peasants who couldn't read so they could look at the pictures and, and understand some of the stories. We have PowerPoint today. And what we are doing, my opinion, in the evangelical church today is making it as easy as possible so that nobody really knows how to pull the sword out of the sheath and use it. Which is why I tell you over and over, bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, pick one up off the back shelf, take it home and start throwing it around. I mean, opening it up and, you know, swinging it and wielding it and using it. Those verses are given to you as, as background, as support. You all know, I, I go through those pretty fast. But even this morning, Joshua chapter 6, how many of you are already there? Wield the sword and listen. Joshua 6 verse 1, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. And I love this. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and with its valiant warriors. Um, Lord, Joshua may have said, But we're out here. (laughs) And they're in there. How have you given Jericho into our hands? See, this is, just, this is why it's a different kind of war. Because God doesn't think like we think. God sees what's going to take place as already done. It's done. I mean, this victory is so absolutely assured, He tells Joshua, before He even gives him the, the battle plan, oh, by the way, I've given them to you, so we're good to go. And then He begins to lay out what they're going to do. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. And you shall do so for six days. Alright. I get it, I get it. Joshua may be thinking, we're going to march around and show them our armor, and show them our bravado, and our strength, and they're going to see our men, and they're going to be afraid. So when we attack, oh, we'll just take them all down. Right? Wrong. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Okay, so you want us to bring our pastors? Alright. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. Yeah, we're, we're getting to it now. And the priest shall blow the trumpets. Are you with me, Shofar? <laughs> it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. There's your plan. What is that, Monty Python? <laughs> we're going to march around the city six days, and on the seventh day, we'll march six times, and on the seventh time, blow a horn. <laughs> it just, it, it doesn't work in the way man thinks, but this is a different kind of war. We have a different kind of commander. And so, what happened? Verse 20, so the people shouted. And the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. And that is what I call unconventional warfare. And that's the first example of God taking down a stronghold. Taking down a barrier. Can you, can you take down barriers of bitterness? Are you capable of of overpowering walls of of willfulness, strongholds of sin and cynicism? Are, Are you up to that? I'm not. Have you ever in a relationship wondered how you were going to get through to somebody? Because the wall was just too high and too thick. And from all human reckoning, impossible 
to break through. Well, then we read Paul who says the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And again, he lists three. Three kinds of fortresses that we deal with. Number one in verse 5, we are destroying speculations. We are destroying speculations. The stronghold of speculation. Have you noticed that in this world, the speculations about our origin are just getting weirder and weirder and weirder? And some 200 years ago, Darwin came along and speculated about the origin of species. It was speculation. Well, how do you know it was speculation? Because he wasn't there when it happened. So the best Darwin could do was speculate about it, think about it, and try and come up with maybe a way that it it could have happened. It's a speculation of evolution. And yet now today we've got bizarre stuff. People saying, no, what happened was Martians or outer space aliens landed on Mars and they fired the seeds of humanity and and things started to grow and and that's where and they're gonna come back for us someday. (laughs) Speculation. It's all speculation. Stop and think about this. Creation is not a new concept. The creation has been around for 6,000 years. The concept, the idea that we were created by a Creator God is the oldest understanding of the origin of life on this planet of anything. Creation. Well, so why are there all these different speculations? Why do people hazard guesses about all kinds of things? Because when you take God out of the conversation, you have to replace Him with something. When you decide that no longer will you believe there is a God who did this, you have to come up with some reason for our being here. How did it happen? And so it just gets weird. I mean, there were cultures that used to believe that the the earth was flat and sat on the back of a giant turtle. I I kid you not. I'm just waiting for someone to bring that up on CNN. We have new evidence that the earth truly is flat. We thought it was round, but it's really kind of oblong, and it's balanced right now on the back of a tortoise. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Now you say that's silly and we laugh about it, but think about some of the things that are totally believed by people today. Speculations. And Paul says, with the weapons of our warfare, what are they again? The Word of God and prayer. Simple. With the weapons of our warfare, we are taking down speculations. How does that work? Truth. Listen, the truth intelligently and consistently applied pulls down the speculations. Because you see, the one who gave us the word of truth was there. In the beginning, John 1 tells us was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made that were made. All things that were created were made through him and for him. And then John 1.14 tells us, And the word who was there in the beginning and made it all became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. He was there. He saw, He brought about creation and lived to tell the tale to explain it to us. Creation is not speculation. It's truth. Well, it's your truth. See, that's the problem in our culture. Everybody's got their own truth and whatever your truth is, whatever works for you, that's just fine. What a flimsy way to live. 
Really? You want to stand? Well, this is my truth. Well, what if your truth has a bunch of holes in it and you're going to sink and die? How about the truth? And again, this is why the Word of God is so vital to the war effort. If you don't know the Word, then you cannot take down the strongholds of speculation. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11 says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Which brings me to the next stronghold, the stronghold of superiority. He says we are destroying, number one, speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. The stronghold of superiority. What do you mean by that? Listen, it's not that we are against or we're taking down strongholds of everything lifted up against the knowledge about God, but against the knowledge of God. In other words, His knowledge. Listen to that again. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, as if mankind is more intelligent than God. Because that's what we're saying when we reject God, when we say God and Scripture and, and, the, and the truth of His Word, is, it's all bunk. When we say that, what we're saying is we are above Him. We are more intelligent than God. We are raising ourselves up above God, which is really kind of following another commander who tried to raise himself up above God by the name of Satan. The arrogance is, is astounding. In Paul's day, think of the Athenian intellectuals who laughed him off Mars Hill as he tried to tell them the truth. Think of the, the snooty scribes in the synagogues kicking him out every time he tried to show them by their own prophets and own scriptures who Jesus really was. And it was about these that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek for wisdom, and all, in this case, are scorning God's knowledge for their own knowledge. Because I, I, I got it down. I, I know a little more, perhaps, than God. 1 Corinthians 3.19, Paul said, The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. So by the intercession on the offensive, that means you are praying. You have someone who's an intellectual coming to you with all kinds of intellectual speculation and lofty thinking and trying to shut down God. The first thing you do is you pray for them. And you pray that the Spirit powerfully softens a heart. And then the second thing you do is you get in the Word and come up with answers from here. Don't go start reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, i got to study Darwin's theory of evolution so that I can answer this guy. No, study the Word of God. Trust me. It's a sharp two-edged sword. And it does take down strongholds of speculations, of superiority... Man, the arrogance of man falls flat like Jericho's walls. But there's one more, the last one. What I would call the stronghold of insubordination. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now verse 6 is a little difficult to swallow. And... We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That's striking. I mean, even for Paul, 
And some might speculate that this kind of a statement that we're ready to punish disobedience and makes Christianity sound no different than the forced submission of Islam. We're going to punish you if you're not obedient to Christ. And some would try to make that case. Listen very closely. This whole war picture that Paul is presenting before us, this whole thing is a picture, get this, of a world under siege and we are the aggressor. How often as a Christian have you thought it was the other way around? Do you understand me? Kind of looking at me like... We often think that we are under siege and the world is the aggressor. Not so. It is the world that is under siege and we are called out as the aggressor. We are the ones called to be on the attack. We are the ones called to bring the sword of the Word and the power of prayer into this world to come marching in with the confidence of Joshua, watching walls of speculations and superiority and insubordination fall flat around us, giving a cry of shout of praise to God because we are trained up as His warriors. We are the aggressors. Even saying that makes me as a man go, yeah. You know, I want to do a Tarzan yell. I won't. But I say, yeah, we're the aggressor. Well, wait a minute, Rick. How does that fit with our commander who's meek? This is a different kind of war. This is a different kind of war. What Paul is saying in verse 6, literally, and this is important to get, we are ready to avenge all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. What does he mean? Avenge. What is that? Listen, Paul is saying, Corinth, I am not saying this against you, but for you. I am ready to avenge you against the false teachers who are trying to make their way in among you. I am here to avenge those who would try to take down the truth of the Word of God for the speculations and lies of man. I will avenge that. We are ready, he's saying, to come among you And to avenge you against those who would cause disobedience, we are here to fight for you. So what does that mean for us as the aggressors? Listen, we are the aggressors. We are going into this world and we are taking down all these strongholds. Why? To rescue those who would seem opposed to us. We are not called to circle the wagons. And protect ourselves. We are called to go out and fight to avenge those who right now are lost. That's the kind of warfare that we are called to engage in. And to think, even this season, as you're with friends and family members who who you argue with from time to time, to keep in mind that, man, I am willing to fight for you. I am willing to fight for you. I'm going to continue to bring the Word of God to you. And you're going to get mad at me. I get that. But I love you too much to shut up. I will not stop. I'm going to fight for you because you matter to me. I'm going to pray for you. And you can tell me not to pray for you. But I'm still going to pray for you. At McDonald's with my fries, praying against the enemy. That his teeth are getting shattered. That his ability to deceive you is no more. That the veil he's got over your eyes is being ripped off so you can see the truth. That's the warfare that we're called to. To aggressively go after those who are lost. And that is, number four, the focus of our fight. The focus of our fight is not self-protective. This is what makes all the difference in this war. We are fighting on behalf of those who are deceived. 
We are fighting for those who are misled, for those who were lured into disobedience. We are in the fight, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 But against the rulers, and against the powers of the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, I know I've said this recently, but let me underscore it. When you look at someone who is vehemently opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Love them enough to fight for them. They are not your enemy. The devil is. And the world powers. We are fighting to take back the captive. It is a siege ramp that is laid in to set the captive free. And we are fighting not against the lost, but for the lost in this world. Even if they war against us. That is the good fight. Paul told Timothy twice, 1 Timothy 1.18, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight. And then Paul said of himself in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Paul was willing to engage. Man, take that example. He was willing to engage even when it was hard. He was willing to stay at it with Corinth. And as I told you, I think it was last week or the week before, Corinth is one of the few churches Paul planted that has remained to this day. Because he was willing to fight for them. And to push back against the lies and the deceptions and the speculations and the lofty thinking of culture. Why would anyone be that willing as Paul was? This is a different kind of war. And remember, we have a different kind of commander. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4-5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We preach Jesus. We don't preach the bridge. You understand that? We don't preach the bridge. Hey, come be a part of my church. We don't preach evangelical Christianity. Hey, come be an evangelical. We don't preach ourselves. Hey, come be like me. That's the last thing that anybody needs. (laughs) Except when I am like Christ. Because we preach Jesus Christ. And we are bringing the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ into this very lost and broken world. But listen, final thing, you cannot preach the Lordship of Jesus without preaching first the suffering servant. That is Jesus on the cross. Because the most aggressive battle ever fought was joined at the place of the skull, Golgotha, on the siege ramp of Calvary. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. We get it. People reject this message, but it's the only one we've got. He says, but to those who are the called Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's what I would call the paradox of the parousia. The illusion, if you will, of the advent, the coming of Christ. I I noticed that, I think it was Leslie, but in the decorating we have this little manger over here and there's a crown sitting on it. Before the crown can be set on his head, the baby came to die. The meek and humble Savior spread out His arms and became 
the ultimate sacrifice on the field of battle. And Christian brothers and sisters, He invites us to follow Him with that same humility. Are you willing to fight? Because peace is coming.